0: You are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is produced by Crawlspace Media. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to True Crime Twins. I'm Chloe. And I'm Melina. Thank you so much for tuning back in for another episode where we discuss true crime. Today, we are unpacking the unsolved death of Jonathan Luna. Jonathan was born on October 21st, 1965 in South Bronx, New York City. He got his undergraduate degree from Fordham University in New York, and then went on to get his law degree from the University of North Carolina. He was actually roommates with Reggie Shuford there, who's now the executive director of the ACLU in Pennsylvania. Jonathan went on to have a very successful career. He first worked at Arnold and Porter in Washington, D.C., and then for the Federal Trade Commission. He then became a prosecutor in Brooklyn, New York, and then an assistant U.S. attorney in Baltimore, Maryland. In 1993, he married Angela Hopkins, who is an obstetrician and the two had two children.
1: Jonathan Luna was experiencing some difficulties in many different facets of his life at the time of his death. He apparently did not get along very well with his new boss, and he possibly even had risk of losing said job. He was also having financial difficulties, apparently upwards of 25 grand in debt, and had like secret credit cards, and also maybe wasn't
0: being the nicest in his marriage. These claims are interesting because after his death, a lot of people in his life flatly denied these controversial claims, starting with his boss. His boss stated that there was nothing about his performance that put his job in jeopardy. He just flatly denied any kind of conflict or any chance that Jonathan Luna was at risk of losing his job. However, it is reported that Jonathan expressed concern about this to people in his life so that's a contradiction that's not really explained. I think that his boss would probably have reason to deny this if it were true because he wouldn't want investigators to think that there was any kind of animosity giving him any kind of motive. Who knows what the situation really was. Jonathan Luna's parents deny that he was a bad husband or engaged in extramarital affairs Or engaged in any illicit activity at all. There was a bank robbery being prosecuted in his office in which $36,000 went missing in the courts. And he's potentially under suspicion for this. This is never confirmed. He was never formally accused of that. But with the other financial issues that we know about, it's not far-fetched. There is some evidence that Jonathan Luna engaged in extramarital affairs. There's gossip and rumors of this, but there was also a post on a dating website that was posted by a man named Jonathan Luna, who was stated to be the age that he would have been that year that was posted, saying that he was married and seeking discreet encounters, specifically with white women with blonde or red hair.
1: I'd like to think that the profile isn't true, but I don't know. I think that he's very he was a very good-looking, successful, probably charming person, and I think that he may have enjoyed that attention a little bit too much and eventually kind of became insatiable
0: regarding sex. And we see a secretive nature in other facets, like in his financial life, the secret credit cards, and who knows if his wife was aware of that $25,000 credit card debt. She's an obstetrician. He's an attorney. I know that people that work as prosecutors and district attorneys aren't going to make as much as, for instance, criminal defense attorneys. But the fact that she was a doctor, I doubt that they were struggling that much financially, that if they were making normal expenses and living a typical life, that they would accrue that much debt. So it makes you wonder what kind of activities he was up to. You know, was he into gambling? And this is all speculation. Was he being blackmailed? Why was he in so much debt? And why is he potentially stealing money that was evidence in a bank robbery case? Something else that potentially places him as the one that
1: stole the money is that around the same time he had applied for a $30,000 loan online and then shortly after canceled that loan. And some experts out there think that it's highly likely that he could have taken that and did who knows with it. Because like Chloe said, he should have been in a better financial position. So he was definitely doing something that he wasn't supposed to be doing. Gambling is definitely possible, but I also think there might be like drugs, like parties,
0: it could be anything. Jonathan was 38 in 2003 at the time of his death. He apparently was viewing adult pornographic files on his work computer that were not related to his casework. And his caseload did include prosecution of child sexual abuse materials and online predators. But this material was completely separate and it was of adults. So I'm not a male. I don't, relate to viewing pornography at work. I know of men who did do this. I don't know that many, but the people that have confessed that to me, in my opinion, and I'm not trying to be judgmental, are kind of sex addicts, people that can't contain that craving, that addiction, that they need to do it even in a setting that's completely inappropriate. And if that they were caught, there would be ramifications. And that's where I get the insatiable
1: vibe. I feel like that he was like that in a lot of different ways in his life. I think that he
0: kind of was like a ticking time bomb. Jonathan was a very handsome man, very attractive, nice smile. He was apparently very charming in his personality and he was quite stylish. I'm sure that he would be a catch to a lot of people. Where the element of potential illicit affairs becomes relevant in his case is the nature of his death which we will now break down. Jonathan Luna left his workplace at 1138 on or about December 4th, 2003. His office was in Baltimore. He had been communicating with people while he was there. I don't know if it was typical of him to be at work that late, but I could imagine that someone with a job like his would have long hours. He left work, like I said, at 1138 and then took a very long and indirect route He drove for about four hours and ended up in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. If you look at a map at the route that he took, which is tracked because of easy pass and toll tickets, and interestingly enough, he started the route just using his easy pass, and then he switched to buying toll tickets at the toll interchanges. We're able to track all of his movements. First, he went from Maryland to Delaware, and then to the New Jersey and Pennsylvania Turnpikes. At 1257, $200 was withdrawn from his bank account at an ATM in Newark, Delaware. With all these stops, you know, he also got gas later on at King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. There's Even in 2003, there's going to be surveillance, but there hasn't been any information released to the public regarding what was captured in that footage. I imagine it was grainy, and maybe if something obvious was captured, something that was clearly him or somebody else... That would be distinguished, but that has just not been disclosed to the public. At 4.04 a.m., his car exited the turnpike, and the toll ticket that he had submitted had a spot of his blood on it. This suggests that his injuries occurred before his final destination, which was by a creek in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. So potentially he's already hurt in the car. We see a change in his behavior in the collection of his tolls and how he's paying the tolls. Mid trip, So that's kind of unusual. And we see that he's taking a very indirect route. So it makes you wonder if something happened to him while he's in that car, if maybe someone else is driving. He also apparently left his glasses at work, which he needed to drive. I don't know if maybe he had contacts, but it kind of suggests that either he started driving without necessary vision correction, or that maybe someone else was driving the whole time and then something went terribly wrong. The driving
1: around in circles and the indirect route could be reflective of the fact that he wasn't wearing his glasses. I think that maybe he left in a hurry. I believe that he had actually left his family home at 9 p.m. to go to the office. So I think he actually was working on something regarding like a plea agreement. And it was normal for him to have hours like this. As Chloe said, the toll ticket around 4 a.m. that he gave to exit the turnpike had blood on it. And about an hour and a half later, he was found dead face down in a creek, basically right in front of his parked car. And he had multiple stab wounds
0: and was wearing a suit and an overcoat. Well, the first employee of the business where his car was found, which was Sensing and Weaver in Denver, Pennsylvania, the first employee arrived at 5 a.m. His car was noticed by that employee at 5.30 a.m., so about 30 minutes after his arrival, with the lights off, and the front end of the vehicle was actually in the stream. The employee noticed blood smeared on the driver's door and the front left part of the car. Investigators, when they went into the car, they found a pretty large pool of blood in the back seat on the floor. So again, there's implication that Luna was in the back seat and not driving when he's injured, implying that maybe someone else was driving or someone else was in the car. The reason why I keep coming back to that is because despite having 36 stab wounds, Luna's death was ruled a suicide by the FBI. The FBI and local agencies in Pennsylvania both investigated this separately and came to opposite conclusions, the FBI's being suicide and Pennsylvania authorities being a homicide. This is very strange to me, I think, possibly the suicide conclusion came from the fact that Luna was potentially facing these personal issues and these stressors. They also may have noted that he was killed with his own pocket knife. Some of the stab wounds were also described to be superficial. There are some theories that maybe this was an orchestrated hoax to gain sympathy from the public if perhaps he was about to face some sort of public scandal or maybe to get sympathy from his wife. It sounds incredibly far-fetched, but if you have been reading the news or following true crime media in recent days, you'll know the saga of the Murdoch family in South Carolina. On September 4th of 2021, very prominent attorney of Hampton County, South Carolina, Alec Murdoch, called the police and said that After he was tending to a flat tire on the side of the road, that an unknown person tried to kill him by shooting him in the head. And he actually did have an injury to his head, which authorities described as superficial. He claimed he was shot in the head. Authorities quickly determined that his story did not add up with evidence, including surveillance camera footage at a nearby church. And it was eventually determined that he apparently orchestrated a hoax and hired someone to kill him so that his son could collect $10 million in life insurance money. Why would he do this? It's rather bizarre. But just three months before that happened, Alec Murdoch's wife and son were both killed with gunshot wounds. Alec Murdoch has since been disbarred and he has been indicted on a number of financial crimes, including stealing millions of dollars from his clients. I don't trust anything that he says. Who knows if the botched fake suicide plot was even a true story about what happened that day on the side of the road. But clearly this man is looking for sympathy, whether it's because of his financial crimes or the fact that he's a person of interest in the murder of his wife and son. But it's just I can't help but kind of draw that connection. We're seeing another lawyer that potentially is doing these illicit activities, abusing his power and maybe he did want to gain sympathy. I just think as far as human nature goes, it's quite the outlier in human behavior. So, but this is what apparently the FBI thinks, is that either it was a hoax, a uh, act to grab attention and sympathy, gone wrong, taken too far, or he actually went all the way up there to kill himself. Maybe the indirect route was a result of substance misuse, like maybe he was lost. Where I have trouble with this is the fact that there was evidence of injury on the route up to Pennsylvania and the pooling of blood in the back seat, and the extent of his injuries. I know that some of the stab wounds were superficial. Authorities haven't released very much about the location of the stab wounds, except for the fact that most of them were to his neck. He did have a slit throat and he was drowned in the creek, which was ultimately his cause of death. Despite the 36 stab wounds, he was drowned. That was his ultimate cause of death. A funeral home worker spoke to the media, and this is not obviously an official source coming from investigators, but this is someone who has worked on Jonathan Luna's body, and they told the media that he had injuries to his hands, to his back and to his genitals. He had a stab wound to his scrotum. This to me strongly indicates that these are not self-inflicted wounds. The fact that he has wounds to his hands implies defense wounds. How do you stab yourself in the back? I feel like it's not uncommon for people to commit suicide with a knife if that's what they're going to do, but they don't do it that way. There's more evidence at the scene of the crime that suggested that it was a homicide including a second blood type that was collected by forensics and a partial fingerprint. There's an unclaimed federal reward for information on the Jonathan Luna case, totaling $100,000.
1: I personally think that this was not a suicide. I feel like he would have no reason to inflict these types of cuts. I kind of feel like this had something to do with like some kind of sexual encounter gone wrong. It could have been more than one person, like he could have been with some chick and another third party showed up to like rob him or something. You, the authority said that he wasn't robbed, but there's really no way of knowing for sure. He withdrew two hundred dollars. That kind of suggests to me that he was
0: going to meet up with a sex worker. I do think that whatever happened had to do with something sexual. And this is something that Jonathan Luna's parents deny. They think that it had to do with the dangerous people that he prosecuted. But why the stab wound to the scrotum? That I believe is a clear form of rage of a sexual nature toward that person. It makes me think that it was a sexual encounter gone wrong, or perhaps a jilted husband or wife or someone of someone that he was seeing. The $200 withdrawal certainly could have been to pay for a sex worker. I don't know if there's evidence that he sought out sex workers, perhaps it was for a date. There are reports that that $200 was found scattered about his car. So that wasn't even missing. They could have been like in the process of robbing him and then a car came up and they just split. That's a good point. I actually didn't consider that this could have been an interrupted crime. And I think that changes a lot. What someone intended to do could be very different than the actual result if there's an interruption and a risk of being detected by someone If the person arrived at five and didn't notice the suspicious vehicle until 530, that gives someone plenty of time to quickly escape. But the fact that they escaped, it makes you wonder, was the perpetrator, if there was a perpetrator, was this person a local to that area? Did they have someone pick them up to help them get away quickly? Did they flee on foot? Was there any cameras nearby in local businesses or by intersections that could have captured this? It makes me think that the perpetrator is either a local of this area in Lancaster County or at least has connections. It's interesting that they ended up in that area at all. Was he meeting someone there or did something happen before he even left Maryland? Because, again, he wasn't wearing his glasses. He left his cell phone at his desk. He took this indirect route and there was evidence that he was injured before he arrived at his final destination. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show.
1: I wonder if this is a rare Eileen Warnos type situation where it could have been somebody that targeted men like him, like cheating men. They could have had like an ax to grind. That's just another possibility. He was very intelligent and got really good grades in school and even, you know, school smart street smart whatever but i feel like if he really wanted to kill himself with a knife that why give yourself shallow little stab wounds to your chest if you're smart you're going to go for a major artery i think that the neck wound i
0: think came last i don't think it all has to do with smarts i think it also has to do with nerve i can't even imagine what it would be like to stab yourself the fbi apparently characterized some of his wounds as quote hesitation wounds So I think you have to work up a lot of nerve, even if you have the knowledge of what would successfully kill you, it probably takes a lot of nerve to actually work yourself up to get to that point.
1: I think that it also takes nerve to stab somebody else. I think that if there's differences in the shallowness and the deepness of these stab wounds that it could point to a female and a male killer or just a more experienced and a less experienced killer, somebody that maybe is doing what they're told and not really what they want to do. It may not be his hesitation. It could be the perpetrator's hesitation.
0: It's also interesting to note that he apparently had ties to the area of Pennsylvania where he was found, although according to his employers, he did not have any official business in this area. There were reports that he had missed a holiday meal because he said that he had business in that area. But again, this was not confirmed. This implies that he was doing something that he didn't want his family to know about because there's this air of secrecy so did he have a mistress in pennsylvania that he was seeing and or maybe she was visiting maryland and he was taking her home and then something went wrong on the route definitely and maybe that could even explain the sexual element that we're seeing he prosecuted a lot of dangerous people like sex offenders like bank robbers drug dealers So that connection could be there, but you would imagine that because these people are all in the system, that they would have explored such a connection. Something that just came to me
1: is that what if this was one of the early catfishes? What if one of the people that he put away got someone to lure him to him, like get a woman to grab his attention? But then how would he know that he was seeking out casual encounters But, you know, it would be interesting if somebody used a woman to sort of attract him and lure him into a place where he could be
0: completely vulnerable. It's possible, but if he was communicating with someone to this extent online where they're exchanging pictures so that he has an idea of what this person might look like for this catfish to be in motion, I guess that person could have described their looks, but who would drive four hours just based on a description online that just seems like a big commitment for something that is not a sure thing. But if there were a lot of details in their correspondence, why hasn't this been tracked down? You might
1: think it's weird for somebody to drive four hours to meet somebody who they've only seen photos of, but I think it's weird to have porn on your work computer when you have very disturbing materials and other you know, disturbing ideas and themes that you encounter while you're at work. So why on earth would you be in the mood
0: to have that shit on your computer? In my opinion, it's someone that just doesn't have any control over their sexual urges, and it doesn't matter where they are or what they're doing or what kind of disturbing case they're prosecuting. It, it might have even been an escape for him, you know, to kind of lose himself in in be in a different mindset just for a little while. Maybe it was something that he couldn't do when he was at home. It's very inappropriate. And I I think reflective of a bigger issue. I want to express my sympathy towards
1: his widow. I feel really sorry that all this information is out in the open. And I feel as though her marriage was one that had to have been very painful
0: for her. And I feel terrible for his two sons who are now, I think, young adults. At the time, they were small children. It must be horrible for all of them to hear and read some of these things that have come out about their loved one. And it's unfortunate because there was a lot of good to Jonathan Luna, too. You know, he devoted his career and his life to justice. And I read a report even that, even though Some of the laws that he had to prosecute weren't considered fair to him. You know, he had to do his job, but he still made himself heard. In the criminal justice system, in many jurisdictions, and this is something that has been reformed more recently, but there has been a history of crack cocaine use being more harshly prosecuted than cocaine. And this is a racially charged discrepancy because crack cocaine is more frequently used by the Black community and by people of a lower socioeconomic class, whereas cocaine is more used by people that are wealthier and people that are white. And even though he had to follow what the laws were at the time, he made a point to express that he found this discrepancy to be very unfair. And Jonathan Luna was a Black man. He was half Black, half Filipino, and he made his voice heard in that setting. So this isn't someone who should be completely defined by his flaws. And my heart breaks for his family and and, and what they must think. I mean, his parents just categorically denied anything negative. They said there were no affairs and that his death had nothing to do with that. But That's not really consistent with what we're seeing reported.
1: It's also important to remember that this is a very biased account. It's his parents. And I'm pretty sure that if I was having an affair, I wouldn't be telling my mommy about it. I think that maybe he comes from people that deal with discomfort and pain with denial. I think that him and his wife probably engaged in denial in order to deal with
0: the ugliness that was in their life. Unfortunately, it could also be reflective of how he was raised. I'm a parent, and I mean my daughter is quite young, but I know that I probably see her in a biased way. But we're doing a disservice to our children if we're unable to acknowledge their flaws. It doesn't help them at all. It gives them a free pass to sort of act however they want without consequence. If we're unwilling to face some of their bad behavior, so. It's possible that in their grief, they're unwilling to accept the bad things about him. It's possible that they have privately accepted these unfavorable qualities and behaviors of their son, but aren't willing to do so in a public setting because they don't want shame brought upon their son who isn't here to defend himself and who never would have had this kind of negative attention if he hadn't been brutally killed. That's completely understandable but it also could be reflective of how he was raised, which was lacking in accountability, which could explain some of the behavior that's been reported, like the affairs and potentially illicit financial activity.
1: People are very divided about Jonathan Luna's manner of death. It could have been an accident. It could have been murder, could have been suicide. Like he could have met with somebody and then got killed by somebody completely different My
0: theory personally is that something happened possibly even at his workplace. I think that maybe he had an affair with someone that was in the area and perhaps the plan was to take her home and for him to return. Maybe he was planning on driving all night. Maybe he picked her up somewhere on the way, or maybe they were meeting in Pennsylvania behind that business. But I just think his strange route, the fact that he didn't have his glasses or his phone, like if he was meeting her in Pennsylvania, how would he have been corresponding with her? How would he have let her know where they're meeting, that he had arrived? I think the most likely scenario is that something happened either even before he left or on the way where he didn't have control of the situation anymore and that the attack was personal. There was rage there. It was possibly by an inexperienced killer as evidenced by some of the hesitation wounds, these superficial stab wounds. And I think that it was sexually motivated that there was some rage, personal hurt there. The fact that these injuries were on the genital area as well. I feel like if it's sexually
1: motivated, it could be from jealousy, whether it be from a woman's husband or from just another girl
0: who catches who she thinks is her boyfriend cheating on her. But having driven so far, how would these two theoretical people have encountered one another? Do you think that he had two different girlfriends in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania?
1: He could have been followed by anyone for four hours. This is a crazy case. I kind of don't want
0: to discount anything that might seem unlikely. That's a good point. Like there's really no poking holes. No theory has really been ruled out. And obviously after all of this time, it was 2003 when this happened, it's still unsolved. And clearly whatever happened here is not normal. This is an outlier in every facet. He
1: had just an endless list of people that wished him harm because of the nature of his job and the potential nature of his personal life.
0: What do you think about the FBI's determination that it was a suicide? I think that the ruling of
1: suicide is a little bit far fetched. I know I'm not in the FBI, but it's like how Ellen Greenberg's murder was ruled a suicide. I think that it's unlikely that
0: somebody stabbed themselves in the chest and in the back, like into the spine. For those who aren't familiar, Ellen Ray Greenberg was 27 years old and working as a first grade teacher in Philadelphia when she was found dead and she had all of these extreme injuries. And somehow it was ruled a suicide. Her parents have since sued the office of the medical examiner to have her manner of death changed because they found evidence through experts that they had hired that some of the injuries were inflicted post-mortem. And I believe that some of them couldn't have been inflicted after certain ones had been because she would have been incapacitated because of paralysis. These stab wounds were at the back of her neck. So this is another example of a case where suicide is bizarrely ruled, and it makes you wonder why. Why would they jump to that conclusion based on the overkill, based on the way that it was done? How do you stab yourself in the back? The whole thing's really strange indeed. Like you said, I really am inclined to disagree with the fact that this could be a suicide based on the evidence that another person was there. Based on the extent of his injuries and based on the reports that he had defensive wounds, I just think it's highly unlikely.
1: Until then, the death of Jonathan Luna remains unsolved.
0: If you have any information on the death of Jonathan Luna, please contact the hotline for tips at 443-436-7772. Enjoy and look forward to new episodes of True Crime Twins Podcast please take a moment and rate and review on your preferred podcast app to keep up with True Crime Twins consider following us on social media we're on Twitter and TikTok at True Crime Twins and on Instagram at True Crime Twins Podcast you can also send us an email at True Twins Podcast at gmail.com